Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. So last Sunday, we watched our daughter Kate's graduation huddled around a laptop in a coffee shop a few blocks from campus. Parents were not allowed to join the black-robed scholars in the Poughkeepsie heat, which happened to be sweltering even by Memphis standards that day. Initially, we thought Vassar's banning everyone but the graduates from the ceremony was one more casualty of COVID, albeit a small one, but truthfully... The crafted cup was our air-conditioned little briar patch replete with snacks and good coffee that we'd been thrown in like a couple of briar rabbits. Later that afternoon, we left Kate for a last night with her housemates and drove over to Rhinebeck to have dinner with our friend Marie. Marie insisted that first we go take a swim in the magical black lake behind her house. And then as we all dripped dry in her kitchen... The meandering conversation that started down at the dock continued until Marie stood up and and announced, I'm going to go start the pasta and I can't do two things at once, so don't ask me any more questions. Ardell, of course, said, well, how can we help? And Marie said, that's a question. I said no questions. Scott, tell us a story. Now, Marie's a poet, so even though she's a good friend, I felt a certain pressure not just to tell a story, but to tell a good one, right? But it's a lot easier to be interesting if you haven't just been asked to be interesting. You know what I mean? I fumbled around with a few facts from my family history, hoping to get a toehold on something that might unfold into something like a story. I don't think I ever quite got there. But the conversation found its way back forward in spite of my ineptitude which is a form of failure that's hard to admit to you, having been reared in the South, where the ability to tell a story is not just a necessary social skill, it's something akin to a moral virtue. But just now, what you may not have noticed is that I've arranged a few details from one day in our lives into a kind of narrative to begin this sermon. It's not exactly Faulkner or Zora Neale Hurston, which is just as well as you probably wouldn't want to spend even a Sunday afternoon as one of their characters. But story really is the basic form we use to make sense of our lives and our world, to ourselves and to one another, isn't it? Even in this age obsessed with mere information. Reynolds Price once wrote, A need to tell and hear stories is essential to the species Homo sapiens. Second in necessity, apparently after nourishment and before love and shelter. Millions survive without love or home, almost none in silence. And the opposite of silence leads quickly to narrative. And the sound of story is the dominant sound of our lives. From the small accounts of our day's events to the vast incommunicable constructs of psychopaths. In the fourth chapter of Mark, very true to form for Mark, we get two concise versions of two of Jesus' parables about the kingdom of God, or the reign of God, as some scholars say is a better translation of the 
active nature of the reality he was describing. Jesus says the reign of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. And that it's like a mustard seed when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And then Mark tells us that with many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. In other words, the language Jesus used to proclaim the essence of what he was called to proclaim was not the language of science or of philosophy. It was not the language of history and it definitely not the language of theology. He spoke the word only, Mark tells us carefully, in parables. So instead of a theological system or a political agenda, Jesus gives us That farmer sowing seed, sleeping, rising, grain coming up from the earth. He gives us a mustard seed growing up into branches large enough for the birds of the air to make their nests in its shade. And I'd bet my entire collection of Cliff's notes that the question you and I would ask Jesus first if he showed up here and started in with his stories would be, okay, Jesus, but what's the point? Now our gospel ending reads with the suggestion that he gave the real skinny to his disciples off in private, right? But if you read the whole of Mark's gospel, you will not find Jesus' disciples to be a bunch of those hand-waving overachievers from your English class who seem to understand every allusion and metaphor from the day's assignment. The disciples were every bit as befuddled as the rest of the people Jesus talked to. Remember, this is the gospel that ends... Not with the glorious ascension or the great commission, but with two women running from the empty tomb in terror and amazement. Mark seems to be telling us that there's not a point that can be extracted from the stories. The point or the power of Jesus' message is only experienced from within the stories. Maybe because, as Flannery O'Connor once put it, a story really isn't any good unless it successfully resists paraphrase. The gospel according to Mark can't be paraphrased. It must be entered, trusted, experienced, because that's how all the true stories work. Yesterday, I met with a group of concerned history teachers from Grizzlies Prep on our block and several other schools. They'd asked me to Say something about Nathan Bedford Forrest's slave market, which was active on Calvary's block in the mid-19th century. These educators were concerned because the Tennessee legislature has passed legislation about what they can and cannot teach in their classrooms with regard to the racial history of our country. So I shared some of the historical facts that had been ignored or suppressed when a historical marker about Mr. Forrest's home went up on our block in 1955 just one year after Brown versus Board of Education said that separate was not equal in the education of black and white students. 
I told them that the historical commission, the Tennessee Historical Commission, who had erected the original sign, was not interested in revising it when Tim Hubner approached them with research that showed that the business interests that made Mr. Forrest wealthy mentioned on that sign included the buying and selling of human beings. But what I most wanted the people gathered to hear was how I and so many others were pulled not into the facts and the statistics of slavery's legacy in our country, but into the story of slavery in this country, in this city, even on this very block. Some of you were here on the 4th of April three years ago, the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. Calvary held a service of remembrance and reconciliation to acknowledge and confess this part of our history. At the heart of the liturgy was the reading of the names retrieved by the research of Tim and his students of more than 70 people who had been bought and sold on our block. Dr. Charles McKinney was scheduled to read first, and I remember clearly that he was running late. Charles rushed into the front row and was handed his list just moments before he stepped up into this pulpit where he, where he began to read. Jerry, age 35. Charles, age 48. Dick, age 14. Paige, age 9. And the voice of this charismatic and intrepid black scholar caught audibly at the child's age. He went on, Washington, age 20. Catherine, age 23. John Henry, age 6. Marianne, age three. And suddenly, for me and for so many other people in this room, slavery ceased to be a tragic institution that we could understand in terms of dates and statistics and constitutional amendments. Slavery was children and mothers and teenagers and grandfathers with names and friendships and stories. People who laughed and loved and maybe even prayed to the very same Jesus the men did who, who looked them up and down before making bids to purchase them as Forrest and other sellers paraded them around our block like livestock. Slavery, in other words, became a story that this middle-aged white man had information about, but it never in his first 50 years on earth really entered with much more than his head truth of all the cruelty and lost lives, you might say, were the smallest of all seeds until that moment when they grew up and put forth branches in the shade of which at least a handful of God's beloved and enslaved children finally came vividly alive, even for me. I know you have stories like this of your own, maybe that one. Moments when the truth about our lives and our world as God sees them is laid bare to us, either in the unbearable tragedy of their brokenness or in the limitless redeeming love of their creator, which really can still shine through it all in spite of our sins and our distortions. To see suffering and injustice for what it is, you see, is to see people as God sees them. And those glimpses through the lens of divine love can fire us to make the just and merciful reign of God more fully known right here and right now.
With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. I believe he still does. I believe that even in this age of sound bites and fragments of information, we are still able to hear it. And I believe Jesus' invitation to us is still to trust those moments, those stories, to trust what we've experienced when we've been drawn into the great story of God's redeeming love for us and for all people, and then to go tell that story from our place within it, living lives of justice and mercy because we've seen for ourselves that there is nothing truer, nothing more real in all the cosmos than that love. Amen. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.